0: Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 13 years, 400 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicklaus, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the Business News Podcast section on iTunes. The Sports Business Radio Podcast, why should you listen? We're going to help you learn directly from top sports and business executives, athletes turned business people, content creators, and those working in and around the sports world. Whether you work in the sports or business world, you're a student trying to work in sports, or you just want to add overall business skills to your tool belt. We're going to bring you knowledge that you can apply to your life immediately after listening to our podcast each week. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter, at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years. And on Instagram, at Sports Business Radio. It's a special edition of Sports Business Radio. We took our show on the road to the Players Tribune in New York City on December 7th as part of our Sports Business Radio Roadshow presented by Boingo Wireless. My special guest, NCAA President Mark Emmert. This conversation was recorded in front of a live studio audience made up of students from Columbia University, Marist University, and Montclair State University, as well as a few invited guests. There were many topics to cover with President Emmert about the state of the NCAA, and I think you'll find our conversation as well as this Q&A with the studio audience to be insightful. A special thanks again to Boingo Wireless for sponsoring our Sports Business Radio Roadshow events. Enjoy this edition of Sports Business Radio.
1: Thanks everyone for being here today. My name is Doug Lauder. I'm with Boingo Wireless. We are the title sponsor of the Sports Business Radio Podcast and Roadshow. Uh, so why is Boingo here? Just quick plug for us. Um, it wasn't very long ago that when you went to a stadium, an arena, a concert, whoa, stadium, arena, concert, that your phone just wouldn't work. I'm sure some of you remember those times. and. And what happened was a bunch of you would get seated together like this, 70,000 of you, and your devices would just have a hard time getting out of the building to connect to the cellular network that was located outside the building. So what teams and venues and colleges started doing was they started building really robust wireless networks inside the venue. Uh, and Boingo's been doing that for 15 years. Uh, we're partners with really big venues like the Chicago Bears, Atlanta Hawks, Utah Jazz, University of Arizona, University of uh, Louisville, Kansas State, Live Nation, a bunch of others. Um, And really, what's happening in sports in general is technology is becoming a real big driver of innovation. And what's happened, as you guys probably know, is everything from digital tickets to digital ordering to digital concessions. Uh, When you're going to games now, your ticket's in your phone, you order to your seat. Uh, One of the big challenges that that Live Nation in particular was having was getting uh, people to order food in between sets was problematic for concessions. So they're now getting you a beer and a hot dog, a beer if you're over 21, and a hot dog uh, to your seat during the show, you're buying a few more beers, you're buying a few more hot dogs, and it's more revenue for them, a better experience for you. So technology and innovation, it's all really dependent on your devices. We all have at least one device. A lot of us probably have two or three glasses, iPad, tablet, you name it. Uh, So you're bringing more of those devices to these games, the connectivity challenges have gotten worse. So that's what Boingo does and that's why we're here. Uh, So a lot of you may be looking to get into careers in sports and I encourage everyone to look at the intersection of technology and sports because it's growing really, really really rapidly. The innovation is very cool uh, and just something to consider, right? So there's more to the sports space than just the teams and the colleges themselves. So that's my pitch and, but you don't wanna hear that from me, you wanna talk to Brian and to Mark. So without further ado, Brian Berger.
2: Thank you. you.
0: Hello everyone, I'm Brian Berger. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, We love taking our show on the road, getting out in front of live studio audiences. We love doing this in front of students. Uh, For our listeners on Sports Business Radio, we have students from Columbia University, from Montclair State University, and Marist University. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to Boingo for powering the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Uh, You'll see we've got some social media visualizations scrolling through here if you guys here in the audience feel like you want to post something you can use the hashtag sbr thank you to tag board for powering our uh, social media visualizations best way to find our show is sportsbusinessradio.com or on itunes at sportsbusinessradio without further ado let's welcome the president of the ncaa mark emmert give him a hand thank you mark thank you appreciate you being here So uh, my birthday is December 15th, and my research tells me yours is on December 16th. 16th. Happy birthday, early.
2: Thank you, you too. Good good research. You see?
0: (laughs) but this is good. Uh, We we shared the same birthday time. Um, Great to be here in New York with you. Uh, Let's start off by talking. We've got students here in the audience. I know that you were a president at University of Washington. You've been a chancellor at Louisiana State. Just the state of... Education, Because you've been an educator for 30-plus years.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's a kind of precarious time, frankly, for a higher ed in the United States overall. Uh, there's never been a time where a college degree was more important for of young people, or not so young people in their, their lives and their careers, and the need for continuing education and constantly re-educating for the workspace or just for life has never been more important. Simultaneously, we're seeing uh, states, federal government, and a variety of other places pulling back from support of universities and colleges. Um, this wasn't anything we wanted to talk, talk about on our list, but you know, the, the tax bill that may or may not be passed mm-hmm. has a, a number of changes in it that could um, diminish support for universities and colleges. You know, how do they survive? Well, they raise tuition. Well, that creates all the problems of student debt, et cetera. And, and, and so we, we need to find better ways to support our colleges and universities in the current model. Uh, and universities have to be way more attentive to, you know, costs for students, uh, tuition costs and all the other expenses that come along with it to make sure that what has become really mandatory to have a successful career uh, in many, many fields is available to as many students as possible. That's my higher ed pitch for the day. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> interesting because, again, you're now the president of the NCAA, but you've sat in the seat of, of the college president. Mm-hmm. Um, we start our road shows usually by talking about your career path and going back to when you were a student, you went to University of Washington. Yes. I know you went to Syracuse and got your PhD, is that
2: correct? Yeah, I got my PhD at Syracuse, yeah.
0: So maybe, I mean, here we've got some students here in the audience. Take us back to when Mark Emmert was a student. Did you envision one day that you'd have a path through sports or did you think it would stick more to education when you were in school?
2: yeah well I, uh, when I was an undergraduate I didn't have any idea really what I wanted to do I always I had visions of things but um, I, I grew up in a very very modest household. Um, nobody in my family went to college, uh, graduated from college uh, didn't really know people that went to college except for teachers and my doctor. It was a working class community, great place to grow up had a wonderful childhood and great parents but you know nothing that would suggest this guy is going to become president of of his alma mater, um, always knew I'd go to college just because my parents said, yeah, of course you're gonna go to college. Right. I, I tell a joke, and it's actually not really a joke, that everybody and all the males in my family were were skilled laborers. They, they were wonderful craftsmen, uh, did and still do beautiful, beautiful work, and have made great lives and careers doing that, but my dad once saw me with a welding rod, laying a welding bead, and he said, son, you need to go to college, but it wasn't a compliment. It was like, you, you have no talent. Do you understand this? Uh, so I went to college, and, um, and I was every parent's nightmare. I went to college at 18 and never left. I mean, literally never left. So I'd go to college, get my bachelor's degree, took two weeks off, started a master's at Syracuse, uh, hadn't been west of the Rock, east of the Rockies, so I went to Syracuse thinking I was going to downtown Manhattan, <laughs> um, and, and I wound I up, yeah, up in Syracuse. Uh, had a great experience. Circuitously decided, with the encouragement of some faculty, that I should become an academic, which was uh, really not anything that I'd ever even conceptualized. But I knew that I loved intellectual work. I had a great, couple great professors at Washington that got me excited about political science and history. Uh, and... It had a professor at Syracuse pulled me aside, like like so many people, you got one professor that really mm-hmm. has an impact, pulls me aside and says, you, you, you ought to get a PhD. And I was bewildered. You know, why would I do that? Well, because you're kind of a natural at this. You, you're good in the classroom. You do great research. You have this kind of interesting analytical brain, and I was blown away by it, so I... Did the only sensible thing at that point. I moved to the Wind River Indian Reservation in the middle of Wyoming. Um, So I took like two years, I guess. Kind of had my Peace Corps moment. um, And then um, got married to my childhood sweetheart. And then convinced her that we needed to go back to Syracuse. (laughs) Went back and, and I finished my PhD. And then just started a kind of traditional academic career. But got involved in administration at a very, very young age for an administrator and, and found I really liked it. And, uh, and in the back of my mind, I'd always, I'd always wanted to go back to Washington, mm-hmm. preferably um, to do some great things there. And we literally wandered around America like academic vagabonds and, and then uh, ultimately I wound up as a provost and then chancellor at Connecticut at UConn. And, and then went down to LSU and had our Southern Posting, which we absolutely loved, and learned what SEC sports were all about, and, and, then, and then got this amazing, for me, amazing opportunity to go back and run my alma mater. None of that was, was leading me toward this chair right now. Right. But at each of those stops along my career, Colorado um, on up, you know, I... I um, saw the power and the impact of athletics on our campuses, on our students, on our communities, uh, saw what could happen when it was done right, saw what could happen when it's done poorly, Mm -hmm. the positive effects and the negative effects it can have, and, and saw the enormous leverage that you get in terms of changing educational opportunities through sport. So at each of my venues I was, I was more engaged in our athletic programs than a typical university leader would be because I thought it was really important and, and I believe I was, I'm right in that. And, and so here I am at Washington and you know, very happily ensconced doing that work, loved it, was back home, figured I was gonna do that for the rest of my career. And, and um, a guy named Miles Brandt had been president of the NCAA, he'd been president of University of Oregon and then president of Indiana. Right. The university leaders around the country really liked the fact that the president of the NCAA was a university president, a former president. And Miles very tragically got ill and died in really, like, nine months' time. It was mm-hmm. really awful. Great guy. And, and so everybody, all the presidents who were the ultimate deciders on these things said, you know, we, we want another president to to be president of the NCAA. Called me up and said, you know, you'd be really good at that job. And I said, no, I really don't think I wanna do that. But they, <laughs> but they persuaded me that this was all about having an impact on higher education and half a million students and even K-12 education because of the way we could shape policy. And so I, I made the decision to make another change. And, and it turned out to be a really good decision. Uh, to take on this role, and I've been enjoying it a lot, most days.
0: So, uh, November 2010 is when you stepped into the mm-hmm. role as president of the NCAA. I heard a really interesting quote the other day from Jimbo Fisher at his introductory press conference at Texas A&M.
2: I can hardly wait.
0: <laughs> you no, know, what he said, and I agree with this, he said uh, our football team is the front doorstep to the Texas A&M University, a lot of people see this university through the prism of the football team. And he said, I take great responsibility in you know, shaping the, the viewpoint of people through the football team to the university. Is someone who was the president of a university and now president of the NCAA, do you see how, you know, I talk to students all the time and say, I, I pick my university in large part, not just because of the academics, but whether or not I can also be a student athlete or even I like rooting for Duke's basketball team, or I like rooting for Texas A&M's football team, or USC's baseball team. Do you see that as well?
2: Well, in the, in the small world category, Jimbo probably stole that line from me. Uh-oh. He was our, he was, our, <laughs> he was uh, when, when, when I hired Nick Saban, when we brought in Nick Saban, the right. coach at LSU, uh, his first hire was Jimbo as offensive coordinator. So, you know, I spent a lot of time around, mm-hmm. around uh, Jimbo. He's a great guy. I think he's going to do very, very well there. Uh, and we talk, and I would, when I would introduce all of my teams, you know, because and, and, I, I believe it is true that more people know their university, in most cases, uh, through the prism of their sports program mm-hmm. than anything else. They, they, they may not know uh, anything about the university's academic programs, but they know something about their sports programs, especially for the big high-profile schools like an a and or LSU or Washington, uh, so, so, yeah, it is the, it is the front porch, that, that, that the way in which people know your school. If that program's working really well and reflects your values and the things you want the world to see, it's a good reflection. If that program doesn't reflect those values and people are misbehaving, or, you know, then, then all of a sudden now they know you uh, through, a, uh, through a different prism. Um, when I was at LSU, we, with, with Jim Bowes, our offensive coordinator, we won a national championship. Uh, New York Times asked me to write an op-ed for him, and, and you know, they, the New York Times generally doesn't ask people at LSU to write op-eds on higher education, because you know, uh, around higher ed issues, they tend to have a regional bias, I'll put it that way and it doesn't necessarily involve southern universities. So I you know, I wrote a, a story, the headline of which was if I remember it right, you already know more, my quarterback, but let me introduce my astrophysicist. And so I was able to talk about using sport, I was able to talk about, let me tell you what this university is all about. Yeah, we win in football, but yes, we also have the highest graduation rate in the SEC for our football team, and also we're doing all these other things, and this is what we're really about. So it becomes this Really important vehicle for communicating who you are, what your values are, what you stand for. Um, it, it's it's not just a you know a brand marketing device. It's it's a very powerful way to to explain to people who you are and what matters at that school. When so you, Jimbo's
0: right. When you when you <laughs> see, I mean, gosh, in the last couple of months especially when I see some of these salaries that the coaches are making I mean 10 years 75 million dollars for Jimbo yeah yeah. not bad Um, (laughs) do you ever shake your head because I see you know college football and basketball and I get it because these are huge ambassadors for the universities they're big brands in and of themselves they're getting donor support I, I connect all the dots but you know, as someone who took over in 2010 to now, I mean, the salaries in the, the multi-billion dollar industry
2: of college sports has certainly grown. Oh, they've exploded. And I think it's, it's uh, got lots and lots of people scratching their heads wondering how do the economics of all this make any sense? Uh, if I go back to um, fall of 2000, I guess, 99. Uh, yeah, 99, uh, when when we hired Nick Saban mm-hmm. at LSU, we hired him, again, if I have my memory right, for $1.2 million. And I got beat to death over paying him an outrageous salary of $1.2 million. He mm-hmm. <clears throat> gave him a multi-year contract. Uh, I forget whether it was three or five years, but it was a multi-year deal, $1.2 million, Uh, second highest in college football at the time, and and now his offensive coordinator makes more than that. Uh, You've got multi-million dollar position coaches, not multi-million, but million dollar uh, position coaches. You've got baseball coaches, last I saw in the SEC, there were six or seven baseball coaches that are million dollar coaches now. I think all of that was unpredictable. <clears throat> yeah, I think it raises all kinds of questions in people's minds, and, it, it, and it, it's um, driven by all kinds of things. It's driven by the profound desire to win uh, that programs have, uh, and the, you know, that gets spread across the whole campus, across the community, across an alumni base, and so their willingness to support very, very large salaries um, you know, come into play, it's driven in part by, I think, an inherent risk aversion around hiring coaches and ADs uh, that, that, you know, look, we, we need to win, I don't want to take a risk if I'm a president or an AD, I want to a, hire a known quantity, so I'm going to steal a coach from a good program and bring, well, how do I do that? Well, I offer more money? And so you get a, you get a bidding war for a relatively small number of people. Because they don't want to take a risk on a coordinator that's never been a head coach, they you know, so it gets conservative. I think that's a real problem for diversity, you know, as well. So it's harder to get um, coaches who are uh, uh, minority coaches. It's hard to get women coaches into in some fields because everybody wants to hire you know a winner. A winner is a proven commodity. Well, that means that they look a lot like everybody else. So I think it's, 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 it's a cycle that we've got to figure a solution to. We don't have any, we the NCAA and the universities don't have any vehicle to cap salaries. There's no legal way to do that. There's no way to cap uh, expenditures on sport. There's a lot of people that talk about, well, maybe you go to Congress and you get an antitrust uh, ruling so that you could, say, you know cap football, not salaries, but expenditures. Schools can only spend X million dollars on football program. That would be interesting, but it's also illegal. <laughs> so, so there'd have to be a change in the law to allow that to occur. But it, it, it's a really interesting problem right now.
0: So the toothpaste is out of the tube, so to speak. There, there's probably no reversing this trend with coaches. And then, you know, you couple that, and I, I know you get asked this a lot, but you know, and I know that I've seen some of your recent quotes about when people say, well, gosh, look at all the money the coaches are being paid, but then shouldn't the players be Yeah, shouldn't the
2: players be paid? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. well, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, you know, one of
0: my thoughts on my show for the last 14 years is, and I I get the whole Title IX thing, and I have my daughters around here somewhere, um, so I support, you know, women's athletics, but it seems like football and basketball are the revenue generators on a college campus. Is it time that we treat those sports differently and those athletes differently than the rest of the student athletes who aren't generating that same revenue they're not on TV as much what's your solution there
2: Yeah so I, that's one of the common themes and I mm-hmm. think it's something that you know is worthy of and deserves a, a really thoughtful conversation because it's not it's not as simple as saying well look you know Coaches are making five million, seven million, ten million, whatever they're making these days. Uh, so, therefore, that's a lot of money, and you need to. Therefore, you need to pay students. That the, those two decisions really have to be decoupled. The real question is: Do you want do, do universities want to have their their athletes, their student athletes, be employees of the university, earning a salary, and and it doesn't matter what the salary is, some people say. Every year you'll read an analysis that says, look, if you took the money that football programs make and you did an NBA model and gave half of it to the athletes and half to the, to the university, what does that look like? And by that calculation, everybody could make $100,000 or whatever, which is probably arithmetically true. Now, if you're, but then you gotta say, okay, so now we're gonna hire football players, don't recruit them, you hire them, right? in the marketplace, you pay them $100,000 or whatever the, whatever the market could bear. Uh, they, they are now no longer treated as a student for any legal or other purposes. You don't have to worry about Title IX in that model, by the way, because they're not students anymore. They're employees. So Title IX doesn't cover employees. You don't have Title IX for professors. So now the students are the same as a professor or you know an administrator or custodian. They're employees of the school. Well, now they're covered by employment law, and if I'm hiring somebody for 100 grand, I can't imagine why I would hire a 17 or an 18 year old. I'm now hiring football players. I'm gonna hire the best football player I can possibly hire. So, I'd probably get the guy that just didn't quite make the NFL, or the guy at the Canadian Football League, Hmm. or the guy that just got cut from the NFL.
0: So it's like a minor league system. Well,
2: well, it is a minor league system. I mean, why would I hire a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old who doesn't know the game? And oh, by the way, after four years, I have no legal right to fire that guy now. Why? Because I've hit 23, now 26? Well, that's employment discrimination. As long as that person's capable of playing basketball for me, he's going to play basketball for me. So he's 36. I mean, you know, I, I'd have taken Ray Allen even when he retired. He was still, he'd still have to shoot. he still had a man could still shoot. I, boy, he'd have made, he'd look great in purple and gold. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, now it's a completely different thing. I don't know that there's a market for that, that people want to see that hmm. a, a professional employee playing in a university's colors who has only some tangential relationship to the university. People go watch, here's my theory, and there's a lot of public opinion data to support it, people go watch college ball to watch college athletes play ball. Uh, And and I have a really good point, proof point, with basketball. There's something out there called the G League, which is the developmental league now called the G League for Gatorade because that's the NBA runs, right? They've got almost now one team for every NBA team. I think there's... 26 of them or something like that. Uh, The worst, and most coaches, I haven't found a coach that disagrees with this hypothesis. The worst G League team in America, and I I have no idea who this is, by the way, because I've never watched one, and how many of you have ever seen a D League game? Four of you, right? Right. You all care about sports, but four of you have gone to a D League game. How many of you think you could name all 24 of the D-League teams? Let alone their mascots.
0: For our listeners, not one hand is
2: not, not up. Not one hand went up. The worst of those teams, the worst of them, would win our national championship in basketball. They're way better basketball players. Hmm. They're just, just not quite good enough for the NBA. So the attraction can't be that we want to see the best basketball players. Because nobody, not nobody, they get very small audiences. There they, are very little media exposure. None of us know who the champion is. I sure don't. So it can't be about, I just want to see the best basketball player. Mm-hmm. It's, I want to see the best college team. The best D League, G League team, if we put them after the, after the Final Four last year, Carolina wins, we say, okay, now let's have a match with the best G League team. It would be a blowout. And and everybody agrees with that. So so what people want to see is they want to see college students playing college ball. Right. When we turn them into professionals, it's a different prison. It's a whole different prison. So so I don't so that model it that doesn't work that it can be just a direct translation. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't do we higher education universities shouldn't do everything we can to support students? Absolutely not. We have to do that in my book. And, and I've been pushing along with a lot of other people to get the rules changed to allow anything that is tethered to education, happens to be a legal term now, that we can do to support students I think is great. And I think we need to look at liberalizing our rules in every way we can to support that kind of structure. And we've seen a ton of changes in the past five years that I, I think are really good. That doesn't fix the coaches making too much money problem. Um, but but it's we we gotta be careful how we change the model. That's
0: well what... and, and one of the things you know I've heard you speak about is is that two percent of all student athletes who play college athletics make it to the pros.
2: So it's the elite of the elite. So yeah, two impo- percent of division one. Okay. If you count division two and three right. as well, it's like under a percent. So the point is the importance of an education and getting that education and
0: going on and doing something. I love your guys' commercials that you run during March Madness and some of the football games that you're gonna major in being a doctor or a lawyer and you can still be a great student athlete, but it doesn't mean you're gonna be an elite athlete. So um, my friend Ken Shropshire just wrote a book about um, really helping the student athletes maximize their opportunities around education while they're in school you know, whether it's getting them that tutor or making sure that they have ample time to, you know, pass their courses and complete their degrees and, and things like that. So it sounds like that's really where the emphasis is best spent on the student athlete. Is that?
2: Yeah, it's sure what I think. And, and you know, part of providing them everything that they need to be mm-hmm. successful is not just success on the court or on the field. They, they need and deserve that too, obviously, because some of them, many of them, too many actually, aspire to be professionals when they have little probability of that, so we survey our, our students on a regular, student athletes on a regular basis, uh, the, what some of the interesting facts are that about three quarters, <clears throat> around 75% of Division I men's basketball players, three quarters of them say, I am going to be a professional basketball player, when it's a, a less than 2%, so 73% of them are gonna be disappointed. Division Two, half of them say I'm gonna be a professional basketball player, and it's, I don't know of a Division II professional basketball player, but I'm sure there's been some. Even more amazing, 24% of Division III basketball players, men's basketball players say, I'm going to be a professional basketball player. It's zero, it, it, and it's rock hard zero. So so we, we, we've got to make sure that they have every opportunity to perform in their sport at the very highest level simultaneously with helping them understand that yeah, okay. Pursue your dream, but odds are you're going to make a li- odds are strong. You're going to make a living like the rest of us. So let's help you in that preparation too. That's providing you with all the academic opportunities you need, and we got some work to do there. We can talk about that if you want. Trying to get this time balance right because that's really really hard. We can talk about that if you want. Making sure that they have the kind of academic support in a classroom that they really need, given the time demands that are on them making sure that people are honest with them about their curriculum and they're getting the kind of courses that they deserve and need to be successful in life. So we got, we've had a lot of success in graduation rates at virtually every Division I school in America. And I don't know the data for your schools, the three that are represented here, but for virtually every school in the country, student, NCA student-athletes have higher graduation rates than the non-athletes. Uh, and, and that's something we're really proud of. Now, they still got issues. They, they may not always have time for the major they want. They may not have time for internships and, and work experiences and study abroad to prepare them for their career. And we need to work harder on that. And we're doing some things this year that have helped a lot, uh, but we need to do more there. But the, the graduation success right now is, has been climbing. It's at record highs by a long shot. It's it, that part of the model's really working.
0: We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. The Time management is hard because you're you're practicing a lot. You're playing games. Uh, Very weak example here, but I went to Loyola Marymount, Mm -hmm. and I was the radio broadcaster for the basketball team. So even though I wasn't playing, I was missing class because I was on the road with the team all the time. So the importance of tutors to me and people who helped me keep up with what I was missing in class was very important if I wanted to graduate in four years, which I ended up doing. But you know, if you're one of these student athletes, that time management part is, is really difficult.
2: Yeah, it's hugely challenging. You know, the, uh, So one of the things that we did, started this about three years ago, uh, had our student-athlete advisory committee, so we have national student committees and then campus and conference committees, had them structure some surveys so that it had credibility to the kids themselves. And and then we we conducted it for them because we know how to do those surveys. And we got a ton of data back from the students themselves. What do you want in terms of your time? And, And whenever I'm on campus, I get on campuses as often as I can. I meet with all the athletes that are there, all three divisions, talking to them about what's working and not working for them, it is amazingly consistent. They don't want to spend less time on their sport. Hmm. They're, they're competitors, they, they will do whatever they have to do to have that starting position to get faster, to get stronger there. They, they, they don't want to take time away from their sport.
0: But does that couple with what you said earlier where some of them have the false sense of, Absolutely. I'm gonna be the guy that goes
2: pro, so I'm gonna spend as much time Absolutely. on my sport. Absolutely, but even with, even with a, a women's softball player, okay. you know, they know they're not going to play professional softball. That's not a, there's, not, there's not a career track for that. They don't want to spend less time on their sport. They, hmm. They're competitors. They want to win. They wanna, you know, we, keep, we, we keep saying, no, no, we want you to not lift weights for this. Oh, i got to lift weights. I can't, I can't not lift weights. I mean, it's almost where you have to lock them out of the gym sometimes to control some of the time. Now, that doesn't mean there's not abuses with coaches. There are. Unquestionably, there have been abuses where coaches have unrealistic expectations of their time because the coaches want to win. The coaches, job security is about winning and they they push kids too hard sometimes, clearly. So we we were able to change some of the rules. I won't bore you with the rule changes this year, but to cap the time demands that coaches can put on students more realistically, both during the week, during the day, during the season, um, to give them more time and opportunity it seems to be working this year, but we're gonna to have to go back in and, and try and find some ways to get more blocks of time. Students want blocks of time where they can do that internship. Mm-hmm. Especially they get into their junior, senior year, they realize, man, I, I guess I'm not going to the league, because uh, now they see that they're not quite that good. Now I gotta get a job, I gotta be an accountant, I gotta be a radio guy, I gotta be whatever I'm gonna be, and, and we need to provide them those opportunities. Having five years of support helps a lot. And and many athletes, of course, are five-year students, and that that can help enormously.
0: I wanna transition and talk about uh, the state of basketball. Little background on me is years ago, I did the media relations for Nike All-America Camp and for the AAU events that Nike put on.
2: This is a disclaimer then? Well, it's, it's, (laughs) it's to let
0: you know that I've seen this culture firsthand. I've seen the coaches and parents that tell their sixth graders, you're gonna be the next LeBron, you're gonna be the next Michael Jordan, that build an AAU team in seventh grade around two or three kids. So I've seen the promises that have been made. I know you've got the commission on basketball that you started, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Grant Hill, David Robinson, some amazing people on it. And I've seen you say that you know, what's going on right now is unacceptable and that it needs to change. How do you clean this up? Because from where I've sat and watched over the last 20 years, it's kind of a mess.
2: Well, it's not kind of a mess, it's a, <laughs> it's a complete mess. And, and the first thing we have to do is be honest about that. Right. Now, College sports in America have never been stronger in any way you wanna measure the metrics of performance, whether it's the academic performances or the, or the athletic performances or the interest of audience or in, in any way you wanna, me- or, or participation rates, of men and women, it, that's all at record highs. So you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a ton of things that are wonderful and exciting, and, and we have to acknowledge that. But there's also some stuff that's an ugly underbelly of it, mm-hmm. especially those sports where there's, where there's high levels of financial opportunity for a very limited number of kids, back to that 1% that are going to play professionally, and and there's a, a lot of people that want to cash in on that, right? Through that, through that performance, uh, and and so we've seen an evolution, really a devolution, in my opinion, in a number of areas of critical relationships. So the first one is, I, I think we've got to be clear about, and these are the, these are the, this is the charge that we've given to the commission. When yeah. I put together the commission, I brought these people together. I said. The board and I agree, here are five things that we've gotta find uh, solutions to. The first is, what's the relationship with professional basketball? If a young man and his family want to play professional basketball, and, and that's it, they don't really have an interest in going to college, and they, should, they don't need to. You don't need a college degree to go play professional, any professional sport. There, there ought to be an avenue for them to go do that Without feeling like they've got to go over here to the N.C.A. and play for six months, let's be honest about that, and then and then jump back out again. That doesn't. That's not serving anybody's interest, right. frankly. And and so, you know, working with the N.B.A., these are their rules, not ours. Mm-hmm. Got to be clear about that. But we we need to have a professional track to become a, a professional basketball player. We have it in every other sport, basically, except football. So let's help with that if we can. For a young man that wants to become a professional basketball player, but also wants to go to college and get a college degree, great, come on, let's, let's do that. And let's help you in that transition. There's some things right now that don't work about that, too, we can come back and talk about. And then for a young man who comes to be the best basketball player they can, but they know or they're not sure they're gonna be a professional basketball player, great, we want you too. But we also want you to get a great education like the others. So there's kind of three tracks there. but we got to have that first one be really clear. If a dozen to 30 young men and their families say that, and that's kind of where we are at the one and dones now, that why am I going over here? I don't want to be over here, you hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, don't don't do that. We, we don't want you to be forced to go put on a uniform you don't really want to wear for six months that's that's not a student athlete model. it's just a it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a, a model that just doesn't make sense. Let's, let's move those young people to a place that works for them and their families. So we gotta, we gotta fix some of that relationship. That starts to deal with some of the concerns that you're driving. The second piece is, we, it's closely related, is we gotta change the relationship with agents and advisors. The, the young people, in, in my opinion, need to have, and this is true in all sports, They need to have people who can provide them with honest, Mm. objective advice about the probability of being a professional athlete that families can trust and they believe in, and the people are not unscrupulous folks that are just trying to use that opportunity for their own advantage. There's a lot of good agents out there that are honest people that can really be helpful. Uh, We need to create a system, modify our system and our rules, and work with the Players Association and others to, to, to clean that morass up um, and, and let them have a relationship that makes sense and, and that we don't immediately declare you ineligible because you talked to somebody that gave you good advice and maybe there's a way for us to help set up a system where they can get that kind of honest advice independent of us, this isn't our job, because they wouldn't trust it. They, they need it from a trustworthy source. We have gotta change that agency relationship. We, we do need to change the relationship with the shoe companies. So we have a great business marketing relationship with the apparel companies. Works well for them. Works well for, for college sport. Um, they get to promote their brands. A good positive relationship for the most part with, with our schools. That's all great. These are some of the smartest marketing people in the world. You mm-hmm. worked with them. They are really, really good. They got to be able to figure out how to sell shoes without having to bribe a kid. Right, I, I, You know, that, <laughs> that can't be part of the business equation here. Uh, so we gotta, and this is hard, because we still have ongoing investigations with the Southern District of New York, so we can't engage with them right now till all of that dust clears, but we gotta find a way to, to work with them, to work with the fifth, fourth thing on the list, the summer basketball, AAU basketball model, grassroots, whatever you wanna call it, to change some of that dynamic. There's important roles for them to play in developing youth sport, but youth basketball in America today is has no oversight process. Nobody's in charge of it. Right. We don't want to be in charge of it. I don't think that's the NCAA's <laughs> role. But there's no structure right now, so it's just free for all. And, and, and we, the NCAA, need to work with our coaches about when and where they have access to youngsters and at what age, and control that more strictly than having it be the shoe company's role of, of playing that, taking on that business, and, and uh, we gotta recraft all of that, and we can do that, we can make, we can't, we don't control everything there, of course, nor should we, but there's a number of changes we can make that will have a profound impact there, and then fifth, lastly, we've gotta, we being the, when I say we, I don't mean the NCA national office, I mean we in higher ed, the universities, because uh, it's a it's a decentralized decision making model, we've got to be serious about what the schools want to hold each other accountable for, and and what level of in a number of areas right now accountability the schools really want to use the national office to to engage in some of the the uh, enforcement of some of this activity. So, this... that's a long-winded answer, no, I know, but, it's, it's but very good. Head, it's... and we have got to do this. This is, I mean, we've got to be really clear, this is on our shoulders, yeah. nope. there's a lot of people that want to step in and solve it, no shortage of people in Congress, that would love to step in and run college sports, no shortage of people out there saying, you know, we could do this better. If the universities, which is to say the NCAA, mm-hmm. can't do this themselves, all the other options get pretty ugly pretty fast. So this is on us. we got to do it. It's our responsibility, and we got to do it in real time.
0: So if I gave you the magic wand and you could turn the NCAA into anything that you wanted it to be, enforcement, subpoena power, whatever it would be, what would that governing body look like?
2: Well, I'm going to give you what some people in your audience and maybe the students here will find maybe less than satisfactory. I wouldn't change it all that much. To give it subpoena power means you gotta turn it into a government agency. And that's the only way you get legal subpoena power. So now we're a branch of government. Um, I, I'm not sure that I know of a lot of, with all due respect to government and, and politicians, I, don't, I, I can't think of a lot of things that have been improved by giving them over to the federal government um, and to, to operate them. <laughs> it's not a dig at them, I mean, it, just, it just means now we've got a whole different dynamic going on here. So, I, I don't, it, it's a self-regulatory system of universities holding themselves accountable, and I think that's the way it's gotta remain. But will ha- Having they? said that, well, I think, yes, it will. Having said that, uh, we do need to come up on the, on the enforcement uh, approach. I would wave the wand and say, for dealing with the 10% of the cases that are really difficult adversarial relationships, we need a new model. Where we actually go in and say, "Okay, fine, we're going to have an adversarial relationship here. Let's take off the gloves and let's do that," Mm -hmm. and that that would be, I think, advantageous for everybody. We can change that model, and maybe that's an arms-length relationship from us. Maybe it's not. Think of WADA, you know the the drug the the drug anti doping agency. -doping, uh, agency. You know that's an independent nonprofit doesn't have anything to do with the Olympics, but it oversees all of the Olympics. So maybe we need some little thing out there that's kind of wada like to oversee the most egregious of, of uh, cases in college sport. But don't, go to go- don't turn it into a government agency. Uh, I, I think the other, the other piece that you know, I'd love to see is, is I'd love to see the schools um, come together, and this is where you would need congressional action uh, to come up with, with some kind of model where you can balance out expenditures uh, around sport. Back to, and this isn't about coaches pay per se, it's about th- this huge imbalance that's going on right now around what schools can spend versus what other schools can spend. And th- the model's getting really, really disparate. And, and I worry about, uh, about that a lot, especially around the sport of football, Basket- but it's happening in basketball too.
0: We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Ergon Office, who manufacture beautiful, high-quality electronic standing desks. Co-founded by former hockey player Sam Finn, Ergon Office is on a mission to inspire people to live a more active lifestyle because the human body just wasn't meant to be sitting 13 hours a day. When I'm not in the recording studio, I have a home office and I like to alternate standing and sitting throughout the course of the day. If I don't, my back gets sore or it'll lock up. I also get an energy boost every time I stand and work or talk on the phone. Studies have proven alternating between sitting and standing leads to increased productivity and a reduction in muscle disorders like back pain or carpal tunnel, which costs society close to $50 billion annually in lost productivity and medical bills. What I love the most about Ergon Office is that the desks adjust using an embedded touchscreen, allowing you to switch seamlessly between a sitting and standing position in seconds. You can even save your preferred heights for more convenience. Ergon Office's height adjustable desks are available in Canada and the United States. Change how you work and be healthier in the process. Ergon Office has beautiful high quality desks with a unique design and they couldn't be easier to adjust. Their customer service is great too, so they'll help you find the best desks that work for your needs. I'm a really big fan of this company. Check them out at ergonoffice.com backslash SBR and use the promo code SBR10 to get 10% off any standing desk. That's ergonoffice, E-R-G-O-N-O-F-I-S dot com backslash S-B-R promo code S-B-R-10. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at erganoffice. Now back to our conversation. I mean, when you look at... Jimbo's contract. So one of the, the quotes I read was that this was paid for out of donors. This wasn't paid for from the state institution or, or taxpayer dollars. Right. So it becomes the, the haves and have nots because not all the donors have that kind of money to pay the football or the basketball coach. So there is kind of this uneven advantage given to some of the schools that drive huge revenues or have big donor bases because they can go out and hire that caliber of a football coach at that price tag when some of the other schools they, they can't compete in
2: that. Yeah, and football's a game where numbers matter. It's a big complex game. Right. Obviously, you got a lot of coaches, got you know you got to get all your great coaching staff around you. It's an expensive game to be successful at and and, and the revenue is is skewed now through the college football playoff, which we, I hope y'all know we don't we don't run that. Um, it, it's uh, we oversee obviously football, but the CFP is is a creature of the conferences, which is fine. That's that. That all works works well, but you got five conferences, and and the top half of the schools in those five conferences that are really pulling away economically, uh, and you know nobody wants to take money away from anybody, uh, but but it is creating a a schism around football that's uh, challenging to manage. Them, I guess is the right way
0: few more topics I wanted to hit with you before we open it up to the students and the audience, so make sure that you have your, your good questions ready. Uh, I'm in Oregon, and we've seen, you know, Willie Taggart just left University of Oregon. We've yeah. seen coaches leave. Coaches can pick up and go at the drop of a hat. I mean, I was watching Willie Taggart post on social media earlier in the week. Go Ducks, recruiting, and the next day is (laughs) signing at at Florida State. Go Seminoles. So I think one of the problems that people have is coaches can do that. But if I'm a student and I commit to you as a coach to come play student-athlete for you, uh, I can't. I'm locked in to my scholarship. Do you ever see the rules changing? I I get the downside of letting students become free agents and move around like the coaches do. But I also think there's a number of student-athletes that I've spoken with, and the coach is a large part of the reason they choose that university.
2: Yeah, I, I think the transfer rules are clearly broken right now, and they, they have to be changed. There's a, there's a <laughs> We always put together committees, right, because you've got to pass everything through our complicated legislative process. Right. But there's a group working on that right now, so I, I suspect, I hope, uh, I'm actually confident that we'll see changes by this summer, Around the transfer rules, I think they are heavily skewed um, in favor of coaches and programs, and students are disadvantaged by that. And it needs to be fair. Coming up with a solution that's, you know, that's um, the right one is—it's complicated. Mm-hmm. But that's no excuse for not fixing it. And there's a lot of proposals on the table right now that I personally like a lot, and and I think they're going to. Some many of those things will get passed.
0: My daughter, uh, Sophia, is in the back of the room. Give a wave. So she's 12, Her first trip to to New York. Uh, She's very excited to be here. But I look at women's athletics more closely because I have a daughter. Yeah, sure. Um, How do you feel like women's athletics is doing? I'll tell you, the the Final Four for women's basketball last year was (laughs) was one of the most exciting events that I've seen. So, and I see the TV ratings going up. Are you happy with the progression of women's sports on the collegiate campuses at the D1 level? Well,
2: I'm really happy about many things and we got some real challenges in a couple of other cases. So, you know, what we see in terms of the success of women's participation, we're seeing, mm. we're seeing you know, continued growth. Um, there's still more men playing college sports than women, but in our championships, we run NCA runs 90 championships. In those 90 championships, last year for the first year, there were more women participating in our championships than men. So we're, you know, we're seeing positive trends. The audiences for uh, particular women's sports are moving up really nicely. So our women's basketball that final four women's final four was fantastic. Yeah. Wonderful audiences in venue and on media. It was great. Uh, but also we're seeing it with women's volleyball. Uh, women, our women's volleyball championship is becoming incredibly popular. If you if you haven't watched women's volleyball lately, you owe it to yourself to watch it. It's it's such a great sport. Uh, and then and then our softball championship, the softball World Series in Oklahoma City is becoming very popular. Great game for audiences, quick, energetic, fun, great athleticism. So we're seeing that. Where I'm really dissatisfied is is with women's progress in coaching ranks for a variety of reasons, Um, some known, some unknown, the number of women that are coaching at the collegiate level in women's sports is going down. So we have never had in the history of women's volleyball a women's coach, a woman coaching women's volleyball, make it to the final four.
0: That's an interesting... I would have never guessed
2: that. Never? No, I wouldn't have either. But, you know, we've we got some sports where we're just not getting progress. We're seeing some progress. For you women that want to be professionals in the sport, we're seeing some significant progress with women athletic directors uh, and with women commissioners. We're seeing very little with women of color. Got a lot of work to do there. Um, and and we're, we're attentive to it, and we're trying to make that all... Um, easier, but again, you got to remember, the NCAA is a collection of 1,100 colleges, all of whom make their own hiring decisions, right. and we can't pass a Rooney rule. We would if we could, but because these are all individual schools, individual states, they all have their own labor laws, they all have their own collective bargaining laws, we can't, like the NFL, say, thou shalt interview minority candidates. we, we, we w- I know we would if we could. The best we could do is say, we want all of you to put your hand in the air and promise that you're going to do this, which we did. Uh, two years ago, and and so we, you know, we got a bully pulpit, we work that, we work on developing young women and minority coaches and administrators, and we've had some nice success there, but we're getting really good success on the student-athlete side, we got a lot of work to do on the administrator-coach side.
0: We talked earlier about a, a WADA-like organization. Um, I see JT Barrett, the quarterback at Ohio State, plays in the Big Ten Championship game, he has surgery on his knee, six days later he's back playing. Yeah. The NFL and NBA have gone to models where there's the independent outside doctors, consultants, when someone leaves for a concussion or things of that nature. Do college athletes need some sort of an outside perspective where someone could say, well, JT Barrett, maybe it's not the best idea that you're coming back on the football field six days after you had surgery?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the reasons that just, uh, I guess, three years ago now, I think I got this right, maybe two, uh, well, it was three years ago, it just went into effect two years ago, every school in every division is now required to have a, a designated chief medical officer, basically, that's not the term, but who, who does not report to a coach, hmm. whose chain of command is outside of the coaching staff to be the ultimate arbiter of that kind of decision. Uh, so, so a coach can't have his doc say, right. you know, we really need JT out there. Right. Uh, and so, so we're trying to make sure that there's a chain of command outside of that that coaching pressure uh, that will help with those kind of issues. Now, nobody's naive. We all know that. You know, everybody knows everybody, and and that indiv- individual over there knows that. Boy, we really need you know that that uh, quarterback or. You know this point guard because she's critical to the team, so everybody understands that. But nonetheless, there's there's now distance between those people and their career paths, which helps a lot. The other thing that we've done is one of the first things I did when I took on this job is I created the job of chief medical officer, first time in the NCAA's uh, life. That we now have a really robust research program going on uh, to to look at all of the big medical issues that are out there. So we're now running, paying for, uh, getting, drawing all the data out of unequivocally the best concussion research in history. Uh, we can talk about that if you want. It's, it's helping and informing all of our rule changes every day. You know, it's, we're, we're trying to drive data on it so that that's led by really good medical research and we're trying to eliminate uh, risks to student athletes. We gotta do a lot more work on mental health uh, I've just been stunned by the amount of concern that our student athletes are expressing, college students in general, by the way, around mental health, around mm. stress, stress and strains of collegiate life today, and what that really means for students. It, it's it's a epidemic on campuses, so we're trying to figure out how do we help. It. You know, we're focused on our athletes, but it's true of students in general. There's specific overuse injury concerns that we know mm. are out there, they're driven by youth sport, and some right. of what you saw. You know, the, uh, does everybody know uh, Tommy John surgery, baseball, right? Well, see, I'm an old guy. I actually remember Tommy John, <laughs> right? And that surgery was created for old, worn-out major league pitchers, yeah. right? That's what, Last year, half of the Tommy John surgeries in America were on high school kids because they're blowing out their arms before they get to college, let alone before they get to the major leagues. We we got There's some serious work that's got to go on in youth sport. We're seeing... Freshmen show up on campus that are burned out psychologically. They've got. We're seeing an epidemic of knee injuries with, with girls in you know youth basketball and volleyball and soccer. They're just you're grinding their bodies down. Yeah. We got to help with all of that, and and that's a role that we're taking on now. That the NCA didn't necessarily you know take as aggressive a position in that.
0: That's fantastic. I, I'm so against, you know, when I grew up, I played all the sports and the coaches I see now who say you have to just play baseball, or you have to just play basketball or football, the specialization and then the burnout is ridiculous. I mean, I do my part as a dad. My daughter plays several different things and, and does different activities, you know, and if I had a coach say no, if she wants to play on this team, she has to play year round, I would be like, no.
2: Yeah, That's and exactly. interestingly, I haven't done a survey on this, or it's not scientific, but just the random sample of coaches in college that I sit down with, they all want to know when they were recruiting a kid, what other sports do you play? Hmm. Because they, they strongly believe, and there's good evidence to support it now, medical evidence to support it, that, that being a multi-sport athlete when you're young makes you a better athlete, Period. It, it helps you develop all the, the physical skills and emotional abilities that are gonna serve you well. There's, there's evidence suggesting that no kid needs to specialize in their sport until they're well into their teenage years. The idea that you can't be a great soccer player unless you, you know, start when you're six and there's no evidence to support that. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's a great way to be a bad soccer player. Right. And, and wind up <clears throat> at 16 hating soccer. Uh, so, we, yeah, we got some work there. And, and our role in it is is critical, I think.
0: My last question before I turn it over to the students technology. We were talking to Doug Lauder from Boingo backstage before we came out the explosion of technology. I mean, you know, Doug and I always talk about when you go to a venue now, you expect connectivity as much as you expect bathrooms and concession stands. So from where you sit and your conversations with college presidents and athletic directors and coaches, how much of the conversation is geared at technology, whether it's for the fans or for analytics for the programs?
2: It's a constant conversation today. It's it's one of the most exciting uh, sets of opportunities, especially for folks your age. Uh, this convergence with all forms of digital technology is with virtually everything around sport. I can't think of a of a domain inside sport, college sport. Uh, that isn't being disrupted in really interesting ways. Some of them, you know, dislocating and disturbing to a lot of people. If you look at just the way people consume sport media, I spend a lot of my time in New York when I'm here meeting with our media partners and we're trying to understand how you all, and and more interestingly, 13-year-olds, consume sport media. Most people today don't want to sit and watch a game on TV for three and a half hours. Mm. They just, they will not do it, including old guys like me. It's just, it, 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 we're, we're just not geared that way anymore. How do we make that work for the, for the fans? How do we use technology around healthcare? Wearable technologies and, and monitoring what's going on with the human body is becoming really exciting. How do we do it for analytics around performance? Mm-hmm. To make, you know, people better better athletes. How do we do it with the fan engagement? You know, what kind of analytical information will, will audiences want to see and coaches on the sidelines about what's going on in the game? And how, just it, it's, it's an incredible opportunity. A uh, lot of expense associated with it, so that makes athletic directors and others really nervous. How are we going to you know, pay for all of this in-venue in stuff? But you, but you have to because it's, it's just where the world's going. And um, it, it's, I think three to five years from now, the world's going to look very, very different.
0: We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Reserve your spot for the 2018 Sports PR Summit presented by the Players' Tribune on Tuesday, May 22nd at the Players' Tribune headquarters in New York City. The Sports PR Summit brings together elite athletes, national media members, and senior PR and social media executives for panel discussions, featured conversations, and networking opportunities. The event allows PR execs to lead with a better understanding of the elite athletes, owners, commissioners, and national media people they're working with. The event also allows attendees to see Derek Jeter's one-of-a-kind digital publishing company, The Players' Tribune, up close, as well as network with top Players' Tribune executives. Past sports PR summit speakers include NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, NASCAR legend Jeff Gordon, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, NFL stars Anquan Bolden and Demarcus Ware, Cleveland Cavaliers all-star Isaiah Thomas, WNBA legend Lisa Leslie, ESPN reporters Tom Rinaldi and Jeremy Schapp, and Sports Illustrated executive editor and 60 Minutes correspondent John Wartime. The Sports PR Summit has sold out each of its first five years, and there are only 125 spots. Reserve your spot today by going online to sportsprsummit.com. Follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter and Instagram at sportsprsummit. I hope to see you on May 22nd at the Players' Tribune in New York City. Now back to our conversation. Okay, we have students from Columbia University, Marist University, and Montclair State University. And this is the point of the program where we turn it over. If you have a question, uh, raise your hand, state your name, and state your school. Brian? We've got someone right up here.
2: Uh, thanks, Mark, for coming in today. Uh, Ross Slippy from Marist College. So you mentioned earlier that an increased focus needs to be placed on
0: mental health with student athletes and uh, burning out both mentally and physically. And uh, as a Division One athlete at Marist, I've seen it firsthand. So. How uh, do you think this problem can be solved going forward?
2: Well, it, solved is an is a interesting challenge, because uh, obviously we're talking about a, a, a national phenomenon. Uh, what, what we're trying to do, I'll tell you what, what we're working on, is first of all, we're trying to raise the awareness with campuses, um, athletic directors, athletic administrators, medical providers for athletes, of the reality of all of this, first of all, because many of them aren't aware of it. Coaches are, are not somebody, as you could probably attest, are not somebody you naturally want to go to and say, coach, I'm really having problems, I, got, I, I gotta I got talk to you about, you know, and then whatever mental health issue you got going on. That's a pretty tough conversation. So who is in that loop that can, can be there? I've talked to a lot of people at small schools that say, gee, I don't know what to do, uh, like a small D3 school, and I'll say well what percent of your students are athletes in a D3 school that could be a quarter of the campus so well how many mental health counselors do you have four well assign one of them to the athletes and, and, and you know just as simple a thing as that just just think about how you can get that done we're creating resources um, uh, educational resources that we're distributing out to schools now we've had a, a lot of professionals come together and say what kind of of tools do coaches and trainers need to even start to understand and think about this because the coaches and trainers now are sort of the first responders. I don't know what to do. And so how can we get them up to speed? The schools themselves are gonna have to make investments, um, but we're gonna have to elevate the issue, help train people, uh, make sure that young people coming up through the, through the administrative ranks and the coaching ranks know that this is just a part of your job now. What are the signs? What are the concerns? How do you help your students? With coaches, it's frankly all about performance. Just saying, look, you, you want this young, this young person to perform better and you want to help them become a better student, a better athlete, you, you need to have these tools too. And, and coaches are picking up on it, they're, 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 they're getting this. It's like sleep. All of you, all students are sleep deprived, all of you. They're, you don't even have to tell us, you don't have to smile or nod, I know. But when you can put data in front of you, that says, you will be a better free throw shooter if you get eight hours of sleep. Let me show you the analytics. I saw some great data on Iguodala. He was, a, a, you know, with the Warriors. He had a great this fabulous study where they, they mapped, you know, point to point. Eight hours sleep, turnovers. Eight hours sleep, free throws. Eight hours sleep, uh, f- a field goal percentage. Six hours sleep, because you're on the road. I mean, it's just like a one-to-one correspondence. So all of a sudden, for him, getting eight hours sleep isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. He changed his whole life, because, okay, I I want my free throw percentage to go up five points, sleep. And, by the way, the same thing's true with academics. I know you don't believe that, but it's absolutely true. You are smarter with eight hours sleep than you are with six hours sleep, guaranteed. So there's a bunch of those things around mental health and performance that we we can use to, to... influence people to say, yeah, 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 we gotta, we gotta take better care of our bodies and our brains because we perform better in the classroom and, uh, and on the court. Thank you. Yeah, what's your sport? Swim. Right, what do you swim? A butterfly. Oh, great. Yeah, you got the shoulder sport. That's good. <laughs> right here.
0: Sam Fletcher from Montclair State. Thanks for having us. Uh, you, you said bet. earlier, you know, the problems of paying athletes because of the Government makes them employees and whatnot. I don't believe that they should be paid in the first place, but I do believe that they should be compensated in some way, shape, or form. Is there a way that you can compensate athletes? You know, in respect to how much money they bring into the schools with maybe living style, like you know, you can't buy them cars, but you could provide them transportation, things like that. Is there a way to where athletes aren't being paid, but they're being compensated for the dollars and eyeballs that
2: they're bringing into? The yeah, schools? I think that's a great. It's a great question, it's. A, I think it's a useful way to think about this. Um, it, it gets, um, I'll, I'll try not to make it a, a legalistic argument because I don't think that works. I think it's an unsuccessful argument. Um, but there are some complexities around that that I won't bore you with. Uh, first of all, over the past handful of years, there's been an effort at, in Division I in particular, uh, to, to provide way more resources around a number of the things you're, you're describing. So you're probably well aware of the fact that Three, four years ago now, we moved toward a model that I've been advocating since I got on the job of providing what's called full cost of attendance. So most, sco- most schools that have significant revenue uh, around sports, not all of them, but most of them that have real revenue um, are providing student athletes with a, with a cost of living stipend that's running around five, $6,000. Not a ton of money, but it's, but it's important. So it covers you know the weekend pizza and all that stuff that we'd always hear about. Second, we changed all the rules around food. something I'd been harping on for five, seven years, I guess now. That, that it's great to have schools compete over who can feed their kids best. You know, people were saying, yeah, but that'll get expensive. You know, School X is going to give them breakfast and bed. And that's great, give them breakfast and bed. Who cares? If that's attractive to a kid, you know, compete over who can give them the best nutrition. Why is, why is that a problem? So you can say, yeah, feeding them better, taking better care of them in all those ways is tethered to their education and their athletic experience. So why not do it? Last year we gave, year before last, I don't know the number last year it would have been more. We we distribute um, our total budget in the NCAA almost all comes from the men's <clears throat> the men's basketball tournament. Excuse me. So uh, we distribute first of all it's about a, round numbers very round numbers about a billion dollars. We get ninety percent of that from the men's basketball tournament the rest from other ancillary things we only. Uh, generate revenue in the NCA from our championships. Nothing with regular season, nothing with football, period. It's all postseason and most all of it's men's basketball. So, billion dollars, about a half a billion of that right off the top goes back to all the schools. All three divisions, but mostly Division I because that's where it comes from. Another hundred billion this last year went to all the Division I conferences for their schools to provide students with support for a lot of the things you're talking about. Basically anything that that student needs. They need to fly home for a funeral, or their mom's sick, great, buy them an airplane ticket. They showed up on campus, they didn't have a a winter coat, great, buy them a winter coat. They need a computer for school, fine, buy them a computer. Whatever they need. They can't buy them a car, but they can pay all their transportation costs. They can do any of that stuff. Uh, They can take them on, on a Trip overseas, if they want. Uh, I know wh- one of the first things that, that Duke did is uh, Coach Cade took his team up here, bought them slacks, sport coats, took them to Wall Street, took them all, you know, took them to Broadway play, and Said you need a New York experience in your life, and he used these funds. For, for the, so the, it's it's aimed at exactly what you're talking about, and liberalizing the rules so that most of that can occur. The second piece that where there's a lot of confusion is around well, students can't um, can't be involved in any work right? They're they're a musician and they and they can't uh, make money off their music because of NCA rules. That's nonsense, by the way. They can you know you can you can today there was a big case you probably followed and maybe you heard about. It. Uh, Central Florida or South Florida, I've forgotten where, the the kicker who was trying to sell YouTube videos and it became a big cause celeb and the NCAA won't let me sell my YouTube. But that was nonsense. There is no rule that says a kid can't go on YouTube and make money. There is a rule that says you can't go on YouTube and and show your practice. You can't go on YouTube and show yourself in the weight room working out. You can't can't show yourself being an athlete. But this... the young man was a, kind of doing a stand-up show. I don't know if you saw it. It was kind of funny. I thought <laughs> I was a pretty talented kid. That was perfectly fine. No, no, no restriction on that at all. But we need to make sure people understand. If you want to, you know, if you want to be a filmmaker while you're a football player, great. Be a filmmaker. You want to, you want to write a book? Great. Write a book. Terrific. So, so we we do need to make sure everybody understands that those things are available. I'm I'm strongly in favor of providing students anything and any opportunity that we can tether to their education without turning them into a paid employee of the university.
0: Wow, a lot of questions. University.
2: I'm not entirely
0: sure how possible this is, but you mentioned it earlier with, like the, with the football teams. How possible would it be for them, like the power of five conferences to eventually break off into their own to generate more money if yeah. that's even possible?
2: Well, it's a good question that's often asked. Um, there's, there's no financial advantage for them doing that. They're, 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 first of all, they can do that any time they want, right? So the, the, a lot of confusion about what the NCAA is and what it isn't. Whenever you, just kind of a, a good way to think about it, whenever you read in the newspaper, well, you don't read newspapers, whenever you read a, a, on your Twitter feed, uh, somebody saying, today the NCAA decided... X Today or yesterday the NCAA decided to punish school Y. In your mind, just translate that to today the colleges and universities of America decided X. Today the colleges and universities of America decided Y. Because all of those decisions are made by the universities through a complex representative democracy it can be very complex, can make me and everybody else crazy, but that's how rules are made, and that's how punishments are meted out when it's necessary. Uh, but a school can pull out of the NCA any day they want to. they're They're there as a voluntary member of this association, right? It, it's not like a governmental entity they can they can pull out. So if the five conferences, and I spent most of my career working in in those conferences, uh, if they ever said, look, we want to pull football out of the NCAA, the other schools would say, okay, I mean, if, if that's what you want to do. I don't think that would ever make sense for them. They get all the revenue now. But we, we have nothing to do with football revenue, period. We have nothing to do with regular season revenue from any sport. That all stays with the conference, stays with the schools, okay? So, so the CFP money, which is now you know, a lot of money, We don't see that. We never touch it. It stays with the conferences, stays with the schools. So the only thing they would gain by pulling out is a lot of cost because we actually in the national office run all of the oversight of football. We run all of the infractions around football. We run the football oversight committee. We run the football rules committee, and that all costs a fair amount of money to run those things, so they would have to reinvent it. If they wanted to run their own enforcement, they'd have to reinvent an enforcement division and create all that on their own. So right now, they kind of have the best of both worlds. So, and they would never pull out, in my opinion, they would never pull out of the NCAA because the other championships work so well for everybody. They want to have a national swimming championship where they compete with everybody. Uh, The men's basketball tournament, women's basketball tournaments are iconic events. And they're iconic events in part because Butler gets to have a shot in the air to try and beat Duke. And nobody wants to take that away. Gonzaga gets to go and play, you know, for the championship. And nobody wants to say, oh no, we don't want little Gonzaga around here anymore. You know, we just want the bigs to play. Nobody wants that. So I don't think it, even though there's people that say, oh, it's to their disadvantage, I, I think that's wrong. And even when I put on my old University of Washington or LSU hat, uh, I, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a viable option that I would ever advocate for. Now, having said that, they can, they can do whatever they want to do. Louisiana, Montclair State University. Um,
0: there are many concerns about clustering in academics. USA Today reported finding hundreds of D1 teams overrepresented in one major at their colleges. Right. Do you believe that the NCAA's academic rules are driving these athletes to majors that are perceived as being easier?
2: That's a great question. Uh, First of all, academic clustering unequivocally happens. right? We all get that. We we know that athletes, uh, student athletes, are choosing majors sometimes different than what they would have otherwise, right? Because of scheduling issues, uh, because of rigor in some cases, right? Um, because of, you know, labs or other things that might be associated with that major that make it really hard to, to do that major while they're being an athlete. And, and, and so there's, there's that kind of clustering where they're, they're not necessarily taking a major because it's easier, per se, academically, but it doesn't fit their schedule, and they, they really might want to be... a a pre-med major, but they just can't make it work, and and, I, and that really troubles me a lot. I think that's really a problem, because now we're shaping the rules, the practice, their ambitions are shaping um, their academic choices, and, and and we need to find a way to fix that. Uh, the other the other issue you're saying is that that you're raising is that yes, we have raised. Um, academic standards, first of all, for preparation to get into a D1 program. The intent there, which seems to be successful so far, by the way, we did this five years ago, I guess, but it just triggered in three years ago, guys? Uh, Three years ago, I guess, it it really kicked in, was to make sure that kids are showing up for college better prepared academically so they can take on whatever the rigors are. We're seeing the graduation rates tick up that suggests that that's working. we know that the APR measures and progress toward degree uh, are encouraging students to, to be more attentive to their schedules, but doubtlessly we, it's hard to get the data to answer your question. Common sense tells me that, that they are clustering, some are clustering in perceptually easier majors in order to maintain eligibility. And, and again, part of that's this problem of them assuming I'm gonna be a professional athlete, right? If if I believe in my head I'm gonna make a living as a professional athlete, well then I, I just care about staying eligible, right? And and maybe coach isn't encouraging me to take harder classes because he wants me to stay eligible too. And, and, and that's really troubling. Part of it is we've gotta get youngsters to understand before they get to college that, look, you know, keep your, your hoop dreams alive, but also get ready for what's probably gonna be the case. Pay attention in school, at, at the high school level, it, even before that's where this all begins. Don't take the easiest class. Take stuff that's gonna prepare you for life, and prepare you for college. And then we gotta, we gotta uh, both through time demands, through greater opportunities, post-eligibility, post uh, so if a kid finishes up his eligibility, but he hasn't finished his degree, you know, most schools now, not all, I think it should be all, most schools will allow him to keep his, or her to keep their scholarship and finish up. Well, if you're in, if you're in the middle of a program that's more demanding or you want to shift majors your senior year, great, let's figure out a way for you to do that. And if you have to spend another year to finish up with the major you want, terrific. And, and go ahead and take that more challenging course. I, I, I believe that the concern you're raising is real and, and, I, and it really troubles me. It's really hard to get at it because it's a it's a campus-based phenomenon, and it's it's part of that relationship between a student and a coach. And I, I don't I, I don't think the answer is to lower our academic standards. I, I don't believe that's a solution. I don't know that we need to ratchet them up anymore. But we do. But the solution now has got to be in time and academic opportunities temporarily. Right, give them more time if they need more time. Um, and we're, we're making great progress there, but it's still not as far along as I'd like it to be.
0: We have time for one more quick question. I can one. answer.
2: I can answer short in shorter answers too. <laughs> um, before you, were, uh, Marco Chen, I'm from Marist College. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Um, before you were talking about uh, professional route um, instead of
0: going to the NCAA, wouldn't the European and South American model for kind of youth sports yeah.
2: and a youth system work for that professional route? where at the age of 17, 18, they can decide to sign with their club, or they can decide to go the college route. Can we have that in America? Is that possible? Yeah, I think, I, I think that's in part what I'm talking about. You know, I've had interesting discussions with lots of people um, around the whole youth sport area and the relationship with the pros, and, and there, there's already sort of a, a, a leaning in the direction you're describing anyway in other sports. So you've got the IMG Academies coming out in in other sports. So if you're a tennis player, for example, going to college may not make sense for you as a tennis player, right? You go to IMG Academy, you play all over the country and even all over the world. In tournaments, you play pro-ams against the best talent. And, okay, I'm just going to go play ball. Because I went through something that looks sort of like the European model, but there's not a club in the middle of it, right? There's not a team. It's an individual sport. Same with golf. Um, hockey's got a little bit of that already, right? So do we, the question is do we want to create a model like that in basketball? And the answer's maybe. You know, for, again for that student who, that, that youngster, because we're talking about teenage kids here, that just wants to go see if they can play ball. Okay, then, then let's try that. One of the upsides of that is it would put them in close competition with professional sport really early, and they'd actually realize, oh, maybe I'm not that good. <laughs> and that 75% that think they're gonna go pro might drop to 10, which is still five times reality, but there's a whole bunch of them that'd say, yeah, I think, ma'am, I'm gonna play college ball and get a degree. I would think that would be really terrific. Um, so we'll see about that. I think the harder question is football, American football where you know, there, there's no minor league, you can't take an 18-year-old out of high school and put him in the NFL, they'll be killed. Uh, so so there's, there's, there's not a model there, and when we sit and talk with our friends in the NFL, you know, they, they, don't, they haven't expressed any interest in a club-like model, but could there be an academy sort of model for a handful of kids that, that wanna just, they just wanna play football? Uh, by the way, I don't think that's a bad thing. If somebody wants to be a professional basketball player, that's their life's ambition, go do it. If your life's ambition is to be a musician, go be a musician, great. If you can go to college and, and learn more about your field and get a college degree and that's what you want, perfect, we're the place for you. But if you don't care about that other part, especially if you see it as a burden and you're going to grumble about it the whole darn time, don't go. Just you know, Let's find another route for that that person to play ball, and that does look and feel a little more European um, and Latin. Interestingly, in, I know this is a long-winded answer, I apologize, yeah. uh, it, but interestingly, I've been recently to Europe and Asia where they're keenly interested in college sport because they want to get away from their model, right, because they're saying, no, no, we want a different track uh, in Europe for kids that don't want to play professionally but want to play in a college level, so they're, they're, there's a burgeoning interest in college sport over there. So, it's a really interesting question.
0: That is all the time that we have. It's time for some thank yous. Thank you to Boingo for being our title sponsor of the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Let's give them a hand. Thank you.
2: Thank you. First, first, lesson, first lesson of working in, in, in athletics is always cheer for the sponsor. That's right. right? <laughs> Tagboard
0: with our visualizations. Thank you to them. Thank you to the students from Columbia University, from Montclair State. And from Maris, great questions from all of you. Thank you to the Players' Tribune for hosting us. Thank you to Eric Christensen for arranging this for us. And last but not least, thank you, Mark, so much for taking oh, the time pleasure. to join us. That's fun. Thank you. all. So we have recorded this conversation, and uh, our producer will have it ready and available uh, later today. Again, sportsbusinessradio.com, or you can find our podcast on iTunes. Thank you again so much. And uh, last but not least, my daughter back there. Give her a quick wave. This is the first time she's come to our uh, our event, her first trip to New York. So it's great for me to have her here. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Again, a special thank you to Boingo Wireless for sponsoring our Sports Business Radio Roadshow events. Great event in New York. Appreciate the Players' Tribune giving us use of Studio B. Appreciate the students from Columbia University, Marist University, and Montclair State University joining us as well. Great questions from them. A podcast reminder you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and of course at SportsBusinessRadio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at sports business radio for Brian Griggs. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you soon right here on sports business radio. Sports business radio is sponsored by Boingo wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U S today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com.